Hello. You're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aidan Flax-Clark. I work at the library helping to present discussions about culture, literature, and history to live audiences, and I'm here to share some of those conversations with you on this show. So last week, the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture had a pretty great event on a theme that's dear to the library's heart, archives. The featured speaker was Theaster Gates, who's a Chicago-based artist and who's also the founder and director of Rebuild Foundation. Gates, and by extension Rebuild, are probably best known for transformations on Chicago's south side. The transformation of a group of abandoned buildings into the Dorchester Projects, which is this beautiful, multidisciplinary cultural center with spaces named things like the Listening House, the Archive House, and the Black Cinema House. They also did the Stony Island Arts Bank. A few years back, Gates bought a beautiful broken-down bank from the city of Chicago for $1, and he turned it into probably one of the more unbelievable cultural spaces in the country. Stony Island describes itself as a hybrid gallery, community center, library, and archive, where, quote, neighborhood residents preserve, access, reimagine, and share their heritage, and a destination for artists, scholars, curators, and collectors to research and engage with Southside history. Among the things that Stony Island houses in its archives are books and periodicals that were donated by the Johnson Publishing Company, who published Ebony and Jet. They also have over 60,000 slides of art and architectural history from the University of Chicago, and they have the record collection of house music godfather Frankie Knuckles. If you can, go visit Stony Island. And if you can't, look it up online at least. It really is incredible. Gates was joined in conversation by two others, Dr. Natrice Gaskins, who's a multidisciplinary artist and educator. She's the director of the STEAM Lab at the Boston Arts Academy. And also Dr. Greg Carr, who's an associate professor of Africana Studies and chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University. Conversation was moderated by Alexandra Mitchell, who's a reference librarian and archivist at the Schomburg. So there's a couple of things worth knowing before you get into this one. If you've never been to the Schomburg Center, there's a piece of art there called Rivers, which comes up a lot in this conversation. It's laid in the floor outside of the Schomburg's main auditorium, and Rivers is a lovely tribute to the poet Langston Hughes and to Arturo Schomburg, who's the founder of the Schomburg Center. It's a brass cosmogram with song lines, texts, and literary signs that are woven together as an ancestral tribute in the tradition of African ritual ground markings. The artist who created Rivers was named Houston Conwell. He also comes up a lot during this conversation. And we'll put a picture of Rivers up on the website. Go to nypl.org podcast to find it. Also, I should tell you that there were a lot of slides shown during this discussion, but they're explained well enough by everyone that I don't think not seeing the images prevents you from taking something meaningful away from this conversation. I wasn't there to see this one in person, and I really enjoyed listening. So here it is. Really quick, let me ask you beforehand, as always, that if you enjoy this episode and haven't subscribed to the New York Public Library podcast yet, head over there to your favorite podcatcher and subscribe now. And if you already are a subscriber, why don't you go visit the review sections and say something nice about us? Tell me how nice my hair is. I mean, it's not. It looks terrible, but, you know. All right, here's Theaster Gates, Natrice Gaskins, and Dr. Greg Carr speaking with Alexandra Mitchell. What a beautiful crowd. Good evening, Schomburg Center. Um, I cannot tell you all how incredibly excited I am to have all of our panelists with us this evening. Um, this is a long time coming, um, so you're in for a very special treat. Um, so I wanna open up um, the conversation tonight by having each of our panelists tell us a little bit about their work in relationship to Black Archives and the Schomburg Center. So Theaster, will you start us off? Sure. Thank you. Uh, it's good to see you all. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Um, so I'm, I'm principally an object maker, but um, it's hard to be an object maker without considering both composition and form and scale. Right? 
think those things are um, inherent in object making. But I think it was it was hard then to not also consider how object making and a, a preoccupation with space could then maybe grow a practice that was a little bit more ambitious than just um, small things. Uh, it seemed like the, the the a certain kind of problem of black space I felt fit to kind of think about, like how could abandoned buildings create a generative opportunity instead of like the negative protest. And so I found myself just wanting to use the tools of planning and development alongside an understanding of how beautiful things are composed to try to have an impact uh, in the neighborhood that I live in. Um, so it was like, first I was building the house and then the house needed things. And I think that that my my love of collections, other people's collections, being able to read a person within their collection became really important. And so I needed to give a house, a home to the things that I collected. And in this case, um, buildings and collections started to go together. And so that's become a big part of my practice. Yeah. Dr. Gaskin. Oh. <laughs> uh, I have been um, just thinking about the notion of archive and the notion of archive both physical and also digital. Mm -hmm. Now that we have um, digital humanities and things like that. Um, also computational. Because um, I do believe some of the artifacts that we'll talk about are computational. Mm -hmm. They're produced through that uh, method. And I think going way back, um, and there's a way in which we sort of layer meaning into these artifacts, whether they're digital or physical. Um, I tend to do a lot of things that are on the digital side because at the same time I was sort of coming into my knowledge of um, the African diaspora, I was also um, learning computer graphics. Mm -hmm. So that merged in my studies and now I'm you know, finding myself involved with new technologies and still the African diaspora and still my research is through that medium. Mm -hmm. So. On my, my second year of law school, I clerked for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund down down there at Hudson Street. Mm -hmm. And a few blocks from here, I used to come up here every Saturday to hear the First World Alliance. There's probably some First World people here, a study group here in Harlem. Mm -hmm. And John Henry Clark, who I sat up under for about 10 years, but I'll never forget the first time he said, right over there, 145th in the comment, all I ever wanted to be was a great classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life. I finished a law degree, but I went back to school. and so. And so that's basically what I do. I mean, I teach, um, I work in black spaces, that's a deliberate choice, teach, think, and work. And so to be in this space where Arturo Schomburg, Ernestine Rose, I mean, you talk about Jean Blackwell, Houston, I mean, to, to that genealogy for me is a living tradition, so I work in that tradition. How does that relate to archive? To me, archive is object. You know, in Theaster, you talk so much about that in your work, object. But it isn't just about things, it's about people, as you talk about communes. Mm -hmm. Right. So convening black spaces requires the thing itself. It requires the people and it requires ritual. So tomorrow morning when I'm back in front of my class at eight o'clock in the morning at, at Howard, we'll be we'll have the text, we'll have each other and we'll have a ritual. And so I try to do that on a daily basis. So I'm just glad to be part of this conversation tonight. Fantastic. Fiesta, what would you say is the relationship between your work um, and folk, Southern, and rural cultural traditions? Um, 
so often, so, so I live in Chicago, I live and work largely in, in Chicago, um, so often uh, when people migrate, there's a shedding that has to happen because you can't take it all. And whether that's a migration from Mississippi or a migration from Haiti or from the West Indies back to London, whether it's by invitation or, or um, a forced migration, that it feels like one of the things that we're constantly grappling with is how do we continue to make meaning with the stuff that's left, right? And so I feel like one part of uh, the South for me was, um, let's say, being brought up in a missionary Baptist church in Chicago and, and finding that that church experience was exactly like the black church experience that we would have in Yazoo City, Mississippi, or Silver City. Not unlike um, uh, Ifa being preserved better in um, uh, Puerto Rico or Cuba or Brazil uh, in relationship to a kind of Nigerian diasporic experience. And so one part of this is like, what do we carry? And this is a shout out to Leslie Hewitt. What do we carry in our bodies that allows our, 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 our bodies to function as an archive, the songs, the, the dances, the handshakes, the braiding of hair, the cooking, how can those things kind of retain? But what happens if we then have the possibility of, um, like other cultures, the accumulation of our things that reaffirm the histories of who we are? So it's one thing to, have, to not have the opportunity to, to carry these things. It's another thing when you ask, well, how can we get sophisticated and get past that migratory moment and then actually claim the need for space so that our things can reaffirm who we are and who our kids are and our grandkids are? And so I think that I've been committed to space in a way more than things because space has been the thing that black people have struggled with owning the most. That we're always in our bodies and we always got our stuff. But, but do we own the buildings that we rock in? And so often we don't. And so it's like, well, if, if, if I got to go down as the real estate mogul so that my, my daughters and granddaughters can be the keepers of things in, in their bodies, at least we will have a place to rock. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no question. So, Matrice, I want to talk a bit about your artwork and how it relates to some of the things that uh, Theaster just raised. Um, so, in thinking about the Schomburg Center, artists like Houston Conwell, who um, did the Cosmograph here in our lobby, um, um, a lot of artists employ the Cosmograph, but I see more artists um, employ traditional African spirituality in terms of the Orisha or Ifa, Santeria, et cetera, um, or artists like Rashida Bumbray with Bumbray Run, and the recent video she did, well, almost a year ago, actually, at this point, um, for Common, for Black America, again, um, for Freddie Gray, but less of the Cosmograph. What originally drew you to the Cosmograph in traditional African spirituality, and how did you initially begin to couple it with contemporary Black art through the lens of Afrofuturism, and how does that connect to the archive? <laughs> Um, so I met Houston Conwell as a sophomore in high school. NAACP AXO sent me from Kentucky to New York to compete nationally, and Houston was one of the judges. 
who has to, he has a connection to Louisville. So he was extremely excited to meet this young person in New York City who was from Louisville. Um, and then Houston's work is in the lobby. Mm -hmm. He was also at the Howard Washington Museum um, Library. There's another cosmogram. Yes. Um, so he planted the seed. The seed was planted kind of at that connection. Um, and then a lot of the stuff that I was doing again in high school, working with my teachers, art teachers. I went to an art high school. And then uh, my mother was a computer programmer. So I was taking a little bit of that yeah. at some point. And it all just kind of converged. And then I started more recently thinking about space through immersion. Um, uh, I was at Cape Coast in Ghana in August. And for those of you who haven't been, there's a moment when you're in that space mm -hmm. where you're transported or you're immersed in a moment. Um, and that moment is preserved. Um, suddenly, you know what it feels like. When that door shuts, you know what it feels like to have one hole for air and to be there with 150, 200 people and can't lay down. And you know what it is in that moment, what that feels like. You see the grooves in the, in the floor from the shackles. Um, you are immersed, you're transported. Um, and that can be simulated, but it feels, you can simulate it, but it's not always the same. When we think about space, we think about space in terms of our, being, our bodies in it, but there's also a history, something that happens to us when we leave something behind. So the traces are all there. So I started thinking about virtual worlds and, and taking some of those traces and how do we create feelings that we have in the African-American experience or in the African diaspora experience? How do I recreate surveillance? And so that you may never feel yourself watched in a store, but if I can create a space and you go there and suddenly you feel watched all the time, yeah. that evokes in you a, a discomfort. And then we can talk about what it's like to live that way more often than not. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of taking that um, space, but also the cosmogram itself is a space. It's a portal. So out, um, if you look at, if you think about it, there's a slide. I don't know the number. <laughs> slide number 11. So the, this is a cosmogram on the floor of a church in Savannah, Georgia. This is on the Underground Railroad, so the slaves were breathing through these holes as they were escaping the freedom. They chose the cosmogram as the symbol to be put in the floor so it looks decorative, but it served a purpose. And it was a way of sort of thinking about breathing into the future um, along the, on the Underground Railroad. So the cosmogram has been with us a long time. It's in the ring shout where um, when, pe when people dance, they dance counterclockwise and they dance in certain positions that mimic or simulate the cosmogram. And um, Houston was taking a lot of those symbols from different cultures that had spread out and putting it all together in these diagrams. Um, so architects are really interested in that in terms of the idea of a symbol becoming three dimensions or immersing someone into an experience. Mm -hmm. These kinds of artifacts are, are there, have been there in our culture forever. And then we can start talking about sound. Um, we talk about, so I started playing around with these ideas. When we play around with the cosmogram and see what happens when you teleport um, from one space to another, um, like Star Trek. Uh, in a virtual space, so what happens when you, so I'm, I'm sort of past, present, and future all at once, kind of together. Um, so when we think about future, we're thinking about things that we can't do physically now, but we can simulate it and have those experiences. We can fabricate it if it's digital, mm. so it becomes physical. 
So it doesn't have to be static and stuck in one position or in another. It's something that's dynamic and moves easily across time mm -hmm. and space. So um, that's beginning to get at it and seen also in Khalil Joseph's film, Until the Quiet Comes, it's based on the cosmogram. He's using the same exact positions from the cosmogram to tell the story and storyboard piece dancing that. The last thing I'll say is the cosmogram in the lobby, I was standing, I had two digital pieces. They asked me to remix it and do that with a sound-based um, thing. And so this guy was dancing, looking up at it and dancing. I looked and it was storyboard P. And I realized he was responding to my remix of the Cosmogram through mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. And how do we archive that? And that's something that I think is now the new challenge, right? So that's my answer to that question. Um, Dr. Carr, yeah. you often take your undergraduate students at Howard University on a number of museum visits and study abroad tours. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, there's a visit to the Met on slide, I think, 16. Yes. Um, and its connection to the archive. Okay. Yeah, we call it intellectual CSI. We like to go to crime scenes. <laughs> <laughs> the stuff we stole, so we had to go look at it. That's from the Met, actually. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be up here Saturday, talk about Houston Conwell. He and, you know, Ken his wife, met at Howard University. And uh, the big cosmogram, we'll be standing around it at the New York African Burial Ground on Saturday morning. We, we come up here, take the freshman from Howard up. And the beautiful thing about that cosmogram is that he traces out the genealogy. So you see some of the nation groups, what they would call ethnic groups. You see the quotes from all over. It's not just African people, but it's anchored in Africa. But that picture uh, that, that you just, if you go back to the previous one, that's Mario Beatty uh, there uh, on the left, uh, the finest student of Egyptian language in the country. He teaches at Howard, he teaches Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, in the middle there, Shanice Thompson, who's getting a PhD at Ohio State. Uh, I've been rocking with Shanice since she was 15 years old. She's from Philly. Uh, came through Howard's undergrad. And then uh, right on the other side is Maggie Ridge, who's getting an MD at Meharry. They were undergrads. They went to, oh, Maggie went to Kemet with us, Egypt. And you know, um, soon to be Dr. Mitchell knows well, because we made that trip a couple of times across the water, South Africa, Egypt. And so what they're doing is translating that piece. Now that piece was, you know, uh, abducted and now it's down the street at the Met. But it's, it's a mute piece until you're able to read it. Translation and recovery is, is essential. That's why when Ayikwe Aramai is writing, for example, in uh, Osiris Rising or The Eloquence of the Scribes, we're talking about Afrofuturism and we think the cosmogram is something more than just a symbolic gesture. It's really a way of accessing a genealogy so that we can decide what we want to do next as we improv. But the reason we were there that day was not just to look at the Egyptian collection, which is fine. Dr. Beatty comes up once a semester, usually with his students. But in the next picture, we really wanted to come and look at this huge uh, exhibit on Congo. So in the next slide, you'll see uh, in this one room, they had about 15 of the 20 known Nkisi. Some of you all probably saw those Nkisi when they were on display uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, you walk in that room, and that spirit sense just hits you, man. The power is there. These were developed, of course, in the mid-19th century in a way to uh, work against the invaders, against the Europeans who had come into Central Africa, you know, began to try. And this is an urban culture. You know, Robert Ferris Thompson, as you know, you know, talks about this a lot. But the interesting thing about these pieces is, if we go to the next slide, this is just a close-up of one. I took these pictures, so. Um, the idea is that you see the nails in there. And of course, this is New York, so I know most of y'all know this already, but each one of those nails is, is connected to a dispute that was resolved. 
It could have been a divorce. It could have been a fight between two people. It could have been war. And, and when they finish, they seal it like a signature. So what do we have? You've got an archive there. So in other, but, but if you don't have an archive, you can't read those nails. Literally, as somebody who, who teaches, you know, at Howard Law School, in fact, I'm missing class tonight, but they gave me permission to come up here tonight and do this. But I'm looking at that like that's a version of, well, that is that predates the United States Supreme Court. If you look at the rituals, it goes back before Magna Carta. But because we don't have the ability to read it, we're looking at all these people in this judiciary and centuries of dispute resolution and jurisprudence, what we would call uh, precedent in the West, that is now mute because we have lost the capacity to translate and recover. So finally, what happens when the next slide, and I appreciate you, brother, for not suing me because I know we're not supposed to use these images uh, without no, no, permission of on, Rebuild on. Foundation. But in June, I had to get, <laughs> I had to get to your room, man, because John Johnson, uh, John Johnson, just before he passed away, gave some money to Howard, and at the end of the ritual where we had the convening in, in, the, in the big auditorium, he was in the wheelchair. He got up and he said, it's the only thing he said all day. He said, I remember when my mother moved from Arkansas. I remember when we didn't have any money. I remember when she pawned the furniture and let me start Negro Dodgers. Let me tell you young people something. Everything you will ever do will be made possible by somebody else's sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And he sat down, and it was like, <laughs> it's like, you're right. Y'all you know, clap faster, because for, for about three seconds, it was just like, and then it was like, right? So for me, this June, I gave a talk at Jacob Carella Center for Inner City Studies. I said, y'all got to take me by Stony Island because I got to see these books. Now, I have most of those books because I'm a book collector. That's why I'm broke. But I'm in there, and I'm watching the cat. Is it Chris? Your man, right? He's moving books around. So me and him getting this long conversation about why you putting the books here, why you putting the books there, because I know those books. Yeah. An archive is made alive by the capacity to translate and recover. Yeah. And that is an apprenticed tradition. You can't rush that. That's not a digital tradition. That's not an internet tradition. That is a tradition of literally mouth to ear, text in hand. And so when you write about community, and when you think about this question of Cosmogram, Houston Conwell brings you in, you didn't see him on TV. That's mouth to ear. The Congo people would say Lufuki, right? I mean, you're up under somebody so you can literally smell them. Robert Ferris Thompson says, probably where you get the word funky from. The things stink all in my eye. I'm working, moving books. And I said, well, why you put this here? Why you put this here? And I guess what I'm saying is that the process of archival recovery now must be something that is a convened space where everybody is committed to the community. I have no interest in people going in a collection like that and writing books for their career. That kind of vulgar charism is antithetical to why Johnson put that collection together. And we'll talk some more about some of the other things, but that's why we take people to the place. You got to come to the place. Yeah. You got to come to the place and then stand in the place. And before you come to the place, I want 150 words on why you want to go. Yeah. Yeah. And then we come back, I want another 200 words on what you thought. And now we can get to work because you will forever connect yeah. this training to the place itself. So that's that's. What <laughs> I want to talk a bit about sure. you re doing this recovery yeah, yeah. work in yeah. Chicago and a bit about your connection to what made you initially want to acquire Mr. Johnson's collection and yeah. how did that process go? Tom, can you go to, to image uh, six, please? And then we'll go to image three. Um, so I didn't purchase the collection. Linda Johnson Rice gave me the collection. And it's really important to say that Linda Johnson Rice, the daughter of John Johnson, gave me those books. And there's a, there's a set of things that I can't talk about, but it, has to, but it has to do with, if we think of 
if we think of the Johnson Company as a corporation that in its heyday was about publishing, it was about disseminating the black image through a kind of reproduction effort, and then a byproduct of that network that John Johnson had created meant that other corporations were interested in the market and that that was like a pre-Facebook uh, boom, that he had created a market through the black image and then other people were invested in his network. And then the market shifts from a physical platform to a digital. So in a way, the, the failure of publishing could have made the corporation think that any material good that they had no longer had value and that the material object had been replaced by, a, by the, a commodity that could only work in a digital economy. I mean, y'all know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, sir. I'm trying to talk plain. Yes, sir. <laughs> and so Linda found herself with all these things that the publishing industry was saying no longer had value. Because the publishing in uh, 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 the, the, that world didn't have the ability to monetize an old book. And so it brings up several concerns. One, what does it mean to imagine that the only value in a thing is monetary, right? And then what does it mean to have um, the, the burden of intelligence so that the, um, when your shoes don't fit anymore, you find a new use for those shoes, right? And I feel like part of what, what we've been trying to do, and you can go to the, to the third slide, part of what we've been trying to do is to say, no, 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 Linda, these things really matter. Like, they re they're really the most important thing ever. But this is where um, aesthetics without... Um, or, or archiving without a sense of aesthetics, or um, uh, collecting things without a deep belief in spatiality and people interactions really makes a difference because it's easy enough to put 26,000 books in a basement and put a little light on them and say that's the thing. I couldn't do that. That the, that the thing that I was kind of committed to was like, all right, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna celebrate these black things, then let's celebrate it in a way that is the highest way that I have the capacity to celebrate it. And that that, that meant that the bank building, um, the, the things needed a space worthy of their value, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so I think that in a way, the building and the, the things started to kind of coalesce together. Um, now we have a problem that some of these books are 100 years old. They're signed by the person who gave the book to John Johnson, and people want to touch them. And when people touch, the books are tight together. When they grab the spine, it rips the spine. And it's like, ha, ha. I want you to touch the James Baldwin. I want you to touch the James Baldwin that James Baldwin signed to John and Eunice but I don't want you to rip the spine. That's right. And so then we got this new kind of problem that has to do with preservation and conservation in relationship to the, to the material thing. So when I talk to my colleagues and they say, well, just get a second edition or another edition of the thing. Don't put out your James Baldwin signed edition. Hmm. 
But I'm, I'm trying to create an intimate encounter with, with our most treasured assets. And so I have, from time to time, taken the rip or the broken glass slide to try to create an opportunity for education whereby people would understand that our things have value enough to like be careful with them. And so it means since this kind of institution don't exist in the hood, you got the dollar store, the barber shop, the liquor store, and the Stony Island Arts Bank. How about that? <laughs> and one of these things don't fit. And you know, and when people come, they don't put their hands behind their back and they don't want to wear the white gloves. And so there's a whole kind of um, languaging, like there's a, there's a culture that has to be created so that we can get to know ourselves again. Like, That's right. and it's not just stop running or don't run, you know, it's like, what is it, what can you imagine having a 100-year-old book or a 200 or a 400-year-old Bible? What does that mean? You know, that this was Harriet Tubman's Bible. Right. And and what does it mean for a black institution to, to want black people to want to touch something? So I'm just so I'm just talking now about the things I struggle with every day when my team says, hey, we can't let people touch this stuff. And I say, but I need them to have an almost religious experience. I want them to have a sacred moment. So how do we create sacred moments? Well, first, we built a temple. I got that. I understand that part. Make people walk in and say, wow, black people, this is black people stuff? Right. <laughs> and black people say, this is our stuff? Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I'll just, I'll stop right now. <laughs> I'm just talking smack. No, man. Smack, smack. Um, I'd like all of you to respond to this one. So uh, what would you say is the function of literacy, uh, memory, and art as it relates to the archive and your practices? There's illiteracy and illiteracy. Illiterates can read, just choose not to. So, <laughs> and that ain't me, man. It's all these Negroes down at Howard doing this educational <laughs> research, which is why you have to have black spaces because those type of things become a crisis. Yeah. As you were talking, yes, it made me think about a pair of Jordans, right? That are, you know, one issue. Ain't nobody gonna put them Jordans on. They don't have to be trained. Not they read those Jordans as rare. So the, what's the difference between the Baldwin and the Jordans? Apprenticeship, orientation, culture. Yeah. So literacy is the capacity to read, but we have to think about what we're reading beyond print-based literacy mm. to think about any form of inscription. What do we hold sacred? You know, there's a brand new book out. In fact, I just got it today. You know, another book on the history of writing in the world. Two mentions of Egypt in the book both using the Greeks as the point of entry, and then they go over to Mesopotamia. I ain't got no problem with that because, fortunately, I live, work, think in black spaces, so it really doesn't matter to me because we train a generation to rewrite all that after this country to set the colony falls apart. But <laughs> the, thing, the thing that's important to understand is, no, I mean, you know, that, ain't, that ain't a prediction. We see what's going on, right? But very quickly and finally, the question of literacy then not only speaks to the ability to read and write, but the ability to put things in conversation with each other. Who's mediating the conversation? A mediator has to have multiple literacies because mm -hmm. you got to take people who are at a certain place and bring them to another place, but you're standing between those people and the thing itself. Yeah. 
That's why the archive can, should, has to be in the hands yes. of people who know what they're talking about. Yes. In this building, right over there, man, I want to take a picture. I, I wish I had stopped and taken a picture in that room where Mr. Schomburg was, because when, you know, the legend as it goes, that Gene Houston came in there and rearranged everything by the Dewey Decimal System, Mr. Schomburg came in and fired it because he couldn't find nothing because he had everything organized by color and size. <laughs> he wasn't a librarian. He was a book man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when I met Dorothy Porter Wesley through Charles Bloxton, who I worked with in Philly for years, I'm talking to two bibliophiles, but one had multiple literacies. She was trained in library science. The first librarians on the planet were black women. Sashat, as we know, standing there in the temple, reading the glyphs off the wall, the mistress of the libraries. This is the woman who created everything that could be counted. All the way down to all these black women at HBCUs, Hallie Quinn Brown at Wilberforce, Dorothy Porter at Howard, so forth, so on. They were mediators because they had multiple literacies. So when an 18-year-old showed in, she said, here's the book for you. Yeah. When you talk about that, man, when I think about the art that you're doing, you don't just wake up one day and decide to do that. There's an apprenticeship. So to be literate means to not only acquire literacy, but to be the curator of an archive. To be in an archive means you got to stand between the things and know what this person needs because they're coming to acquire literacy to engage the archive. And that's why that group has to be the group I think we now have to just multiply. We got to create more Alex Mitchells. I mean, we got to create an army <laughs> of them now. So he has to go put them to work. <laughs> so I just want to, there's a slide I want to point to related to your question, which is number 15. Um, so a bunch of scholars guys are writing about African diasporic uh, craft. Um, I was spending time talking to collectors of African art, and then I was spending time studying African American quilts, and then researching kind of this. Um, there are scholars that say that the quilts and the, the improvisation, the way in which the quilts are made and match some of the things that happen in the African fabrics. There are about polyrhythms, about improvisation, um, repetition, and I noticed that um, uh, James A. Sneed was writing about the repetition and, cut, and the cut um, in uh, black culture, black, black creative expression. And he specifically talked about a few examples, and one of them was James Brown's Cold Sweat. And so he broke it down into the sound into text, what's happening in the song. So I started messing around with music visualization technology and said, what happens if I layer a Cuba textile um, with, or a quilt, and then see what happens with the music, the visualizer when I play Cold Sweat. <laughs> so the image above here is a screenshot of Cold Sweat frozen over a Cuba textile. What I found is it was creating the same patterns in the Cuba textile. So it validated what scholars were saying, that the improvisation, the polyrhythmic phrasing, and the polyrhythmic arrangements that were happening in the textiles that are happening in the music are similar. Mm. So, and, and it validates what the scholars are saying. This idea of the way in which the, the textile, there's a bunch of scholarship around the way the Cuba textiles were created and how they were made. And then you listen to the G's bin and, and look at the documentary stuff and realize that we have a, we're encoding our artifacts with vernacular. And uh, whether it's hair braiding or quilt making or things like that, or even sound and music that we create, we're doing some of the same practices over and over again in a way that which demonstrates how we approach technology, how we approach art, how we, our vernacular, our language, our literacies. And all of this stuff is something that can be categorized. It's something that can be um, 
basically you can sort of categorize it according to, even if you look at hip hop and sampling, same ideas. Are, um, we are doing this over and over again from Africa to now. Yeah. Hmm. Not back then, uh, yesterday, or maybe tomorrow, but we've been doing it throughout and we've been using the same kinds of, of practices and methods and, and things like that. So why don't we begin to really categorize these things? Yeah. And so that's what I was looking at when I was doing this project. Yeah. Um, and so literacy, art, um, and what was the other one? Memory. Memory. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe, so, so I'll just talk about art and coding in a way. Um, I heard Carrie James Marshall give a really beautiful talk, and, and, and when Carrie James talks, uh, he talks. Um, but he was saying, you know, part of the reason that I want to uh, make the work that I'm making is so that I can be in this canon. And, and if I'm in this canon, it means that our children who go to public schools will read it. When they go to those big museums, those museums won't be void of our work, that they'll be able to see our work too. So I live most of my life in the art world. It's a world that um, is not necessarily sympathetic or interested in, hasn't always been interested in, in one's personal predeterminations outside of the object. But I decided that I would try to encode in the objects that I was making for the art world all of these other values that I had, that I would force the art to try to do more and, and win on art terms. That it, that it wasn't like, you, you can't make bad social art. You, gotta, you kinda have to win. And you gotta like be like for real and audacious and like you gotta really wanna win at that thing that, uh, that museums purchase. And that if I could take a fire hose and win on the terms of minimalism and have the thing exist purely as the minimal thing, and then have it do this other thing that another kind of literate group was reading, that they were like, they were reading the fire hose, that's cute, it's red, but there's this other thing that we could read that then I needed multiple victories, that it wasn't enough to just try to game out the art world. It was really about trying to ensure that the cosmogram, that, that the cosmologies were embedded in the floor. That at the very foundations, not only of a black moment, but the foundations of an American experience, that we should be absolutely there winning. And so if Jasper Johns can have problems with his dad and talk about it through his art and win, and if Eva Hesse can uh, uh, share her experience of a most unfortunate migration, um, then is it possible for us to win purely on the terms of art and slide in these other codes? And so I think that, that one, one way that, I, that I've been, and I don't, I don't say it out loud like this all the time, but I do feel like it's not enough to win 
uh, at home or just when abroad, one has to has to really believe deeply that objects can convey and transmit lots of things at the same time, and that our audiences and our readers and our sisters and brothers have the ability to, in the most complex ways, hear what you're trying to say. So I'm gonna ask one more question to each of you. Um, the Smithsonian recently published an article about using Miles Davis recordings from the Montreal Jazz Festival in an effort to archive and preserve sound by storing it in DNA. I think this is a fascinating connection between the sciences and the archive. And because we're here to talk about the archive of the future, I want each of you to tell us what you think the archive of the future looks like in relation to this. So, um, I love the idea, I'm thinking about Little Buck right now. <laughs> little Buck. Uh, I think we'll get to a point where we'll realize that the CD or the reel-to-reel uh, -reel or the cassette, the eight-track, that those things have a particular kind of termed life and that um, repositing in the body might be super dope. Like, we might start to use our memories more and use our bodies more and that, that people are straight up coding in the body. If we go with that, then it's like, well, what if we taught, what if, what if students in third grade had to listen to Don Cherry's Mew or um, had to learn Ornette Coleman's riffs or had to, as a field of study, know Abby Lincoln's scats? Right, that, that at, at second grade, there was an expectation that whatever Max Roach was playing, that you should be able to do that by fifth grade. And that, and that there, might be another, there might be other kinds of things that are non-stemic that, that could be a preservation tactic. I'd like to see, I'd like to see us need the body more for the future of archive. So, I, um, so IBM gave me um, some virtual space in 2010 and I did a, a Afrofuturistic playground, so to speak. And in one of the sections was about reproduction and DNA. And the album that's in that space is Bitches Brew, Miles Davis. And so in order to also go further, I created this double DNA double helix um, that you can travel. So this is 2010, um, and I was already thinking about Miles Davis and DNA, and to see that story was really like, um, and this idea that um, people are immersed, so you can listen to Bitches Brew when you're in the space, you understand it in the context of what um, I was feeling about Miles Davis's album at the time. Um, but this is actual, an actual thing where you're encoding DNA with storage. You're actually putting Miles Davis on DNA. Um, and I think that when we think about um, our artifacts, our music, our sounds, the way we embed them in things, we can go further than what we've done before just by looking at examples like that. And I think that giving young people more opportunities to do that um, is a real challenge and something I think needs to happen for us to be, for us young people to be able to craft a future for themselves that isn't predetermined by someone else. Mm -hmm. 
I don't have a good answer for this because I, I mean, as somebody you know working with black children all the time. In fact, uh, um, Candy Stanton and um, and her brother who just passed away. I guess his funeral is Thursday, and no, because their grand niece is a freshman in my class. She'll be there in the morning. She's coming up here for the funeral on Thursday. And I look at that child and I realize that this is somebody who's a biology major but who apprenticed in music. So the way that she approaches things is, is already in an apprentice tradition. Those skills are transferable. But I don't know if I have a good answer because I don't know that we're gonna be around for a future to talk about archives unless we take very seriously this question of apprenticeship. Um, you know, Wande Abimbola, the uh, Babalawo, famous Babalawo, his son teaches at Howard. And I remember uh, Baba uh, Abimbola came to Howard a few years ago and he, we were having a conversation with him and he said, you know, I had some American students who wanted to study Ifa with me and they came over to Nigeria and after a couple of months they, they came back to the United States. They were so frustrated because every time I, we were talking, he, they wanted to write something down. I said, no, 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 you got to listen. You can't do this quickly. You've got to absorb this and then you can, you know, because there's, there's endless combinations of the Oduifa. And he said, he said something very interesting that night. He said, you know what? He says, writing kills memory. And there's, how do you create inscription systems that, are, that can translate and transfer skills? Our young people, they could do Max Roach if, they, if you ask them to. Why? Because when you look at the Yoruba wordplay and word games that we brought here and then translated into something else, I mean, what are we asking them to do? Nobody asks for affirmative action when they jump and rope, when they play in basketball. But those same abilities to perceive oneself in time and space are applicable to any of the other questions. So this artificial division of the disciplines, this Western-centered division of the disciplines is something we have to, I don't know whether we can reverse engineer it, which is why the idea of art is so important to this. Can we transcend the thing that has dismembered us, but then can we reconnect in a way that we can extract the value from the thing that we've created? Because it's one thing to create beautiful art. That's why I think our First Nations can is very important. They have a conversation in Canada now about this question of indigenous rights. And they're saying, we're not trying to preserve our culture so that we can contribute to a multicultural mosaic where we're still at the bottom socially and economically. I think that's where we are right now. What we're trying to do is create self-determining spaces, political, economic, and that requires a deliberate stand. Finally, I, and so I think we need to learn from that because recovering is going to require more than making a fetish of our culture. Recovering is going to mean, what did those nails mean? You'll never know. You don't know that. Yeah. What do those glyphs mean? You don't know. Yeah, we can read that. And what we're going to stop doing is using you as an, our interpreter. Last, the last thing I'll say is, when these brothers take a knee and all this stuff with the NFL, something struck me the other day. I'm watching these cats come out of the meeting in, in Manhattan, and I realized this is the largest group of college-educated and or familiar men in one profession in the country. That's what scares the NFL owners. It ain't the labor. It's the fact that these guys are also been to college. It's intelligent labor. No question. So when they put this manifesto out, yo, you got to break these niggas. Because if they ever get in their mind that the skills it takes to do the type of athletic genius and musical genius, the skills it takes to roof, the skills it takes to tar, they can translate, in, they can translate that into recovering texts and trap. Oh, no, it's a wrap. And I think that's the problem that is distinctly finally the problem of the American Negro, because I think our kin other places are much further along. I don't know how much hope I have for the American Negro, because we seem to be satisfied to celebrate ourselves and let somebody else take the capital. So that's...
don't, I don't have a good answer. Well, Fiesta, I have to say thank you for creating yeah, these little self-determined spaces for us in Chicago. We are so thankful for that. I'm thankful for the Sean Burke. Thank you. And thank you to Dr. Carr and to Dr. Matrice Gaskins for joining us Thanks for this conversation. Attention. Thank you all very much. All right, that's the show. If you want to learn more about the Astor Gates, I really recommend a 2014 New Yorker profile of him called The Real Estate Artist. If you live in New York, head over to nypl.org to access our New Yorker archives and read it. If you don't live in New York, I hope you're giving your local public library all the love and support it deserves. Go see if they have it and check it out. And as always, thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. 